A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastax is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastax Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. Eyes glazed over from debugging a remote Kubernetes service? Instead, run your service locally in your favorite debugger and instantly find the problem. Ambassador Telepresence is the easiest way to debug microservices on Kubernetes. Spend more time fixing problems instead of reproducing them. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. Educative.io is a hands-on learning platform for software developers. Learn anything from Rust to system design without the hassle of setup or videos. Text-based courses let you easily skim back and forth like a book, while cloud-based developer environments let you get your hands dirty without fiddling with an IDE. Take your skills to the next level. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off an annual subscription. Get ready to level up at New Relic's virtual event, FutureStack 2021, held May 25th through the 27th. Join your fellow data nerds from around the world to learn, inspire, and rack up experience in 50 interactive sessions, 12 hands-on labs, and a 24-hour hackathon. FutureStack is your cheat code for observability. Engineers from across the industry will lead you through topics like Kubernetes, DevOps strategies, and observability. Then join us to relax with some Minecraft on Nerd Island. Registration is free at futurestack.com. Game on. And what's great about a coding game is it enfolds all of that into one experience. So you're learning the concept, but then you're immediately immersed into a world where you need to practice and apply it to solve problems. Welcome to Dev Discuss, the show where we cover the burning topics that impact all of our lives as developers. I'm Ben Halpern, a co-founder of Forum. And I'm Jess Lee, also a co-founder of Forum. Today we're talking about gamified coding with a senior curriculum developer at Code Combat, Charlotte Chang, and lead developer of Twilio Quest at Twilio, Kevin Winery. Thank you both so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Of course, very stoked to be here. Can't wait to get into the meat of the topic today, but first we're going to just get to know you two a little bit. So Charlotte, can you tell us a bit about your background as a developer? Sure. So I am the senior curriculum developer at Code Combat, and I've worked at other companies such as Wonder Workshop, LeapFrog, and have also developed curriculum for Disney English as well. At Code Combat, basically my role is to look at the learning objectives that we want to teach kids about coding. And I work with the game design team almost on a daily basis on how can we integrate these learning objectives into a fun and engaging game for kids. Then I also develop the curriculum materials for teachers so they know how to implement the video game in their classrooms. Very cool. Um, Did you have any computer science in your background? It, It seems like you do have some educational stuff with LeapFrog in there. Can you tell us a little bit more? Oh, well, that's the funny story. So 
in my undergrad, I, I went to Stanford and I studied something called cognitive science. And that is looking at the intersection of computer science, linguistics, psychology, and also philosophy. And I took enough computer science classes to almost minor in it, but then it actually got extremely boring with the projects that they were offering. <laughs> and so I actually yeah. decided to pivot out of it. And I, I dove into education because I was interning at LeapFrog and I really loved the educational technology space and decided my expertise would be education. So I went and got a master's in elementary education and spent a lot of time in the classroom and designing curriculum. But when Wonder Workshop saw my resume and saw that I had cognitive science and saw that I had some CS, they pulled me in and asked me to design their curriculum. And so I did have to relearn computer science from scratch when they asked me to join their team. And it was great because I got to design curriculum with the mindset of someone who was diving into coding from the start all over again. And Kevin, can you tell us about your background? So I have been at Twilio for about eight years. And uh, before that, um, I had worked at a few other uh, startup companies uh, working on uh, JavaScript programming and working on developer-facing tools. But even before that, um, similarly, a couple decades ago, uh, much like Charlotte, I had studied computer science for a while, but also just stopped because I, I didn't enjoy it anymore. I thought it was boring and I didn't see how it would apply to things that I was interested in. And it was really only later that I discovered that programming was really a creative pursuit and it's really about the experiences you can create. So um, after ending up with a computer science minor, um, I kind of got back into programming accidentally and now have been doing it for quite a while and thankfully uh, have enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and I've been working at Twilio Quest, uh, the educational game that we build over at Twilio for about uh, two and a half um, years, maybe two years. Although I had uh, built it kind of a while ago as sort of a side project hacky thing, um, but I've gotten to actually you know, work on it in earnest quite a bit over the last couple of years. What's it like to have the company acknowledge that you can keep working on Twilio Quest? <laughs> like that just doesn't seem totally obvious to me. No, it, it is not obviously a good idea for a, uh, a software company to build a video game. So <laughs> I, I do pinch myself from time to time um, when I realize that this is the work that I get to do. But Twilio, first and foremost, is a company whose customers are developers. Uh, we provide uh, APIs for voice, messaging, SMS, WhatsApp, um, and lots of other communications platforms like email and everything in between. And whether or not developers can use our APIs is like that sort of determines the success of Twilio's business. Um, so we invest a lot in serving developer communities through our evangelism program. We invest a lot in documentation and uh, learning resources. And uh, we also invest just in making more people into software developers, like increasing the number of people who can access the power of code. Um, which is kind of where Twilio Quest comes in. So we have built Twilio Quest to focus on folks that are early in career and try to focus on really practical engineering skills, uh, focused on folks that want to actually build and ship something. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not an obviously uh, great idea, but the reason we do it is because we are very interested in as many people becoming software developers as possible. So if I have no coding experience, would I be able to approach Twilio Quest or would I need to have some background info and, and is Twilio Quest a little bit more focused on actually just learning the Twilio products? The vast majority of the content in Twilio Quest is not related to the Twilio API, actually. So our most popular content is 
based on learning the basics of the JavaScript programming language. Uh, we also have one for learning Python that's sort of in second place in popularity. Uh, we have another uh, set of missions uh, that kind of teaches you the Git version control system. That has been super popular. So yeah, the, the Twilio API is uh, actually kind of a minority of the content in the game. And that's, and that's kind of a, a relatively recent thing where for a time, uh, Twilio Quest really was just our internal training tool. But now we're building it with a focus on early in career uh, developers and uh, kind of teaching general engineering skills based on what we've learned from building Twilio Quest so far. How big is the team working on Twilio Quest now? Like That's so exciting for you. So we have four people full-time on the team, so uh, relatively small but mighty. Uh, for a time, it was uh, just me, but uh, there's one other person who works on the product and development side along with me. Um, and then we have a couple of folks who work more on like community and marketing and partnerships and, and that sort of thing, largely looking at following along in the footsteps of what other folks who have been in the space for a long time have done, like uh, the folks at Code Combat and elsewhere, you know, building those supporting resources to help educators understand like where Twilio Quest fits in, um, what they're trying to teach, uh, how it aligns to standards, and how we can, you know, just generally how to be productive with it and where to include it in the curriculum. So in exploring both of your careers and backgrounds, we got into Twilio Quest a little bit, but let's find out a little bit more about what Code Combat is. Charlie, can you tell us a little bit? So Code Combat at our company, we actually have two platforms. We started off with the Code Combat game, and it's basically like a dungeon crawl where kids use the power of coding to complete levels in this dungeon crawl, and they actually level up their hero, they gain new gear, and we also evolved a tournament basically where kids actually develop their own AI and they compete against each other, and it's an international tournament that happens every year. At the same time, we had this almost grassroots growth in the schools where they loved using Code Combat with their students, but they felt like their students needed a little bit more guidance. So we created a new platform called Azaria, which is more of an adventure. So the kids who are playing Azaria, they are a hero going on a multi-chapter quest. And they're actually trying to save the world from this darkness that's taking over the world of Azaria. And in order to do that, they level up their skill sets of coding. And they learn about coding concepts through almost like dialogues in a graphic novel style and also coding uh, in levels and defeating darkness and defeating enemies along the way. What's the gameplay like? Like how much code do I run at a time before I see, you know, something happening? Like, can you give us a picture of exactly how that goes down? Yeah, sure. So kids can learn in JavaScript, Python, or C++. So first they choose the language of preference, right? And what's really great is one of our founders, Nick, his first company was actually a Chinese language learning app. And so when they designed Code Combat, they looked at coding as if you're learning a brand new language. And so there's a lot of scaffolding. So the first level that you see, you'll see some starter code already there for you. So they get exposed to what the code looks like. And we sort of nudge them towards adding another line of code. So we call this scaffolding, right? You want to start them off where they have all that support that they need to be successful in defeating this uh, completing one level. And then as we level up in difficulty, the kids get less and less starter code along the way, and they have to code more and more. And the actions that they do is basically they code to move the hero up, down, left, and right. So that's just basic sequencing. But along the way, we then teach them, hey, if you want to have more efficient movement, maybe use a loop. 
And a loop lets you repeat the same movement over and over again with less lines of code. So we're also teaching them the why. Hey, you're learning this concept about loops because it's gonna make your code more powerful and it's gonna let you complete this level a lot more efficiently, a lot more quickly. So again, we're really, really focused on the why because if a kid doesn't know why they're learning this concept, what's the point? You know, they're gonna get disengaged very quickly. So they understand, oh, cool, if I can level up my powering skills, my hero is going to be way more powerful defeating and completing these levels. That sounds like such a fun way to learn. I feel like I was just like a year or two short of <laughs> being able to take advantage of of code combat. Because like I, I did some like interactive gamified-ish coding when I was first starting to learn through like code school and code academy. And like I thought that was a lot sure. of fun with the different badges. But this just sounds like next level. I agree. Like I, I really envy the kids right now who are learning coding because it's so immersive. I grew up in the Carmen San Diego, Oregon Trail days, right? Same. And I loved those games. And it was just little bits of uh, graphics on the screen. And here I'm working at a company where we're spending a lot of time with the graphics because we know how important that is for the kids to feel like, hey, you know, I really am this hero crawling across a dungeon trying to defeat enemies and collect gems. And so it's just, yeah, I, I am envious of the kids. And I have a one-year-old, so... I can't even imagine what the space is going to be like when she's ready to code. Do you consider yourself a game dev? Uh, I'm just curious about both of you. Like, are you the creator of Twilio Quest, like a, a game dev by trade? Or did you just develop this game and that's what you do? Like, how do you identify in that sense? I'm starting to kind of identify as a game developer because that is the software that I create. But partially because of the work that I've done before, I, I've been a, a web developer and have been, uh, you know, working in JavaScript and Node.js and Ruby and Java and like, a, you know, server side programming for most of my career up until now. Game development had been something I had dabbled in. I'd really enjoyed it, but I had never done anything professionally until uh, relatively recently. So, yeah. So I guess maybe I am now capable of claiming the uh, mantle of a of a game developer, but. Also, the technology we use kind of keeps me from feeling like I'm not really a game developer because we lean heavily on like open web technologies like HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Uh, a lot of our game is written in React, uh, actually. So it, it feels very much like web development most of the time. But I'm, I'm trying to kind of acquire the language of game development. It's helpful when we are working through the user experience bits. Back before the fall of human civilization, uh, I went to the game developer conference in uh, San Francisco and just kind of drank in a lot of game design uh, knowledge. And, and a lot of that has been super helpful in reimagining how this kind of development works because I kind of thought web development was hard uh, before game development, but uh, game development uh, is in many respects, a hundred times harder because not only does it have to work, uh, it has to be you know reasonably pleasurable to use. There has to be kind of an element of of fun, uh, and there's a lot of other layers uh, to kind of get things working on this side. And Charlotte, how about yourself? Oh well, that's a really interesting question, and and so so to provide some context, a game like this, a game where you're engaging kids and also they're learning content at the same time, is not made by one person usually. It takes a team mm -hmm. of people who have a lot of different perspectives to really create a, a compelling product that's well-rounded. And so on at our company, we have a 
game design team that I, I'm meeting with almost every day. And within that team, we have people from a lot of different perspectives. So I'm coming in with that learning background. And in past companies, I was the learning designer or the curriculum designer. And then we have people who've worked on actually really big games. And then we also have an artist as well. And so it's with the combination of all of our perspectives that we're able to develop this, not just the curriculum, but also the game itself. You know, we always start, we call it backwards planning, right? We start with, okay, what's the learning objective? But then we also have a story we're trying to tell. So we have writers in our team that we're collaborating together on and saying, okay, what's the story we're trying to tell? How does that connect to the learning objective? And then we also have the game designers, right? So we have game designers, including me. I'm, I'm, we're, we're wearing all the hats and we're trying to use empathy to understand each of those objectives. So the game designers are thinking about, okay, here's a story. Here's the learning objective. What are the game mechanics in our story that could really align well with these coding concepts? So I feel like I am a game developer during those meetings for some of the times, but then I'm also a learning designer. It's a multi-hat type of role. I think that is definitely one of the major differences between this type of development and other projects I've worked on in the past is how interdisciplinary it is the weaving of the creative aspects of game development, uh, the technical aspects of development, um, also like the the marketing aspects and the community management aspects of how you, how you get a game in the hands of players and how you interact with that community. That, that's been uh, a great opportunity to grow for sure is you know all of that collaboration and the necessity to wear all those different hats that Charlotte mentioned. Sick of your laptop overheating every time you try to run your Kubernetes application locally? With Ambassador Telepresence, you can intercept your services on your local machine so that you can develop on your services as if your laptop was running in the cluster. Never worry about running out of memory again, no matter how complex your Kubernetes application gets. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. New Relic's application monitoring platform gives you detailed performance metrics for every aspect of your software environment. Manage application performance in real time, troubleshoot problems in your stack, and move beyond traditional monitoring with New Relic 1, your complete software observability solution. Get started for free at developer.newrelic.com. To connect with the team behind New Relic directly, join the Relicans. The Relicans is a new community hub designed to help developers create cool projects, inspire one another, level up, and learn in public. You can start a discussion about your favorite programming language, ask a question about software observability, share a tutorial, and lots more. Join today at therelicans.com. So Code Combat is clearly the company's core product, but for Twilio, Twilio Quest, you have like a a smaller team, Kevin. Um, What does the process look like for you? Our team kind of came out of the documentation team at at Twilio. So um, I I managed the team that built Twilio's documentation. We also kind of ran our live training program for a long time. Um, So we had worked with professional software developers on like 
teaching them how to use Twilio, but often that would involve teaching them web development concepts and kind of equipping them with the prerequisite knowledge necessary to build the sorts of apps that you can build with Twilio's APIs. So the work on documentation kind of informed how we build the content in Twilio Quest. We do typically tend to start with a set of learning objectives that we that we want to get to. And that um, sort of often takes the form of a document that looks like a tree uh, because we know that, well, in order to learn this, uh, you actually have to learn this other thing first. And you start to see a set of objectives that looks a bit like a tree structure. And we uh, have used that in various contexts in our documentation, certainly. Um, but in terms of game design, uh, that actually starts to look like a map. So in the JavaScript mission, we know that we want to take the developer go through installing the Node.js runtime on their computer first. And that's kind of the first step. Um, so that manifests itself in the game as like a laser barrier that you have to get through first in order to progress into the level. You have to install Node on your computer and then provide the path to the Node executable in order for you to make progress. And then after that, it starts to open up a little bit and like, well, once you know how a function works, then you can do lots of other things. Or maybe at this point, it doesn't matter which direction you choose first. You could maybe learn how object instantiation works, or you could learn how iteration works, or how Boolean logic works. Um, so there's an environment in the game kind of after uh, a major plot point uh, where you can kind of branch off in different directions based on what you want to learn. So we typically start in that document. We know what we want to do instructionally first, and then we kind of craft a narrative around that tree structure. And the current JavaScript mission in Twilio Quest is probably our most you know, recent articulation of this if, if folks are interested in checking it out. But that's typically where we start. And because it is a relatively small team, my partner in crime, uh, Ryan Kubik, is much more a game developer than I am and has been invaluable in building out the more gamey aspects. But having you know been a web developer and working in documentation, we have historically made a pretty good team in uh, subject matter expertise and doing the scripting and the level building um, and all the other things that you need to do to actually make a mission like that a, a reality. What have you learned about the concept of, quote, gamification? Because that's really the topic today, you know, something that isn't normally a game that becomes a game. In building Twilio Quest, what did you learn about the gamification and how that can apply to pretty much any the other software we build, or at least for developers and, and young coders? Gamification as a word, I don't love um, as, a, as a sort yep. of a concept. Um, what, I, what I prefer to think about is, are we actually making this a game? Like, Are we providing something that is of sort of intrinsic value that is gratifying? But we have always sort of been surprised at how uh, how much motivation it provides just to give a narrative structure to a lesson of of any kind. So earlier iterations of Twilio Quest were like a browser-based tutorial website that did have experience points and loot and that sort of thing. And just the those progression elements were were so uh, motivating, uh, but like far past anything we actually thought was possible. Um, we, we would be at training events where we'd be teaching, you know, the messaging API, and folks wouldn't let us leave until they had gotten that special hat, like by completing the last mission um, in in Twilio Quest. So th those things have been super helpful. Um, and then the inclusion with the current iteration of Twilio Quest, actually, you know, controlling a character in two D space. That's been a real uh, revelation for us. Um, just by literally placing a path in front of the developer, 
it, it becomes instantly and obviously clear, like these are the options that I can, where I can go next. Um, and when you're learning how to code, um, it isn't always obvious after you learn one thing, like what are you supposed to do next or what can I use these skills for? And just being able to sort of put the learner into 2D space where they where they are actually making progress in a visual way um, helps drive people to complete much more content than they ever did um, before we had that uh, tool at our disposal. Piggybacking on the gamification piece, I, I agree that gamification can be a double-edged sword. You need to make sure that if you turn something into a game, that it does feel authentic, that what you're doing in the game feels like, oh, I'm not just earning points for funsies, right? Why am I earning points? How does that connect to you know what I'm learning right now? That's the key. But if you really do it authentically, it's so much more engaging than you know what we've learned via standard textbook. And oftentimes with the textbooks, you just learn the what. You know, what am I learning? Maybe how am I learning it? But oftentimes you don't see the why. And when you put it in a game, oftentimes you're able to see, oh, I'm learning this because I can apply it to solve problems. And the game is actually just posing some really engaging problems for the kids to solve. And in a in a subtle way where we're not like hand holding them through it, they feel like, oh, I'm I have agency in my learning. I can actually take control of my learning and level up my hero by leveling up my coding skills as well. Charlotte, do you get to connect with the kids who have graduated from Code Combat to see what they're up to now and how they've used the skills they've picked up? Yes. So that's also a really gratifying, satisfying part of the job is to hear how much it's changed kids' lives. So we actually, I'm tearing up already, uh, a couple months ago, <laughs> hearing from a teacher whose kid, she had a student who was struggling in the classroom, but uh, she put code combat in front of him and he just dove into coding. And she recently connected with him uh, after he had graduated from college and he actually is an engineer. And wow. it's just hearing that kind of a story, you know, we just had a webinar about distance learning and empathy right now, which is something that a lot of educators and kids are struggling through. And we had a teacher who's using both of our products, Code Combat and Azaria, and sharing what their students have been doing uh, despite all of these hurdles. Like she's able to use our curriculum, even though the kids are at home, you know, and they can sort of progress at their own pace. And they all were designing a game at the end of one of our chapters in Azaria. And I was like, oh, you know, we internally within our company had a game design competition for that game. Like I, we made everyone eat their own dog food and we all went through the chapter and they designed the game. And at the very end, the winner was someone in operations of all people. And I was like, oh, let me share this game with you. So I gave that game to the teacher and the teacher shared it with their students. And all of the students wanted to go back and revise their game to make it better. So it's sort of that kind of like feedback loop of like, wow, we're really making an impact. And I bring those stories back to our team, too, because it really energizes us. We're like, wow, we're making an impact in kids' lives um, by really getting them engaged about this coding concept. That is, is really what makes it gratifying. Um, I think like one of my favorite stories is we had a, uh, a woman who is, uh, had been a, a Salesforce uh, administrator and was really interested in getting into coding, but had had struggled to kind of apply the skills that she 
was learning, like she had done some some browser based uh, tutorials, like a like a Code Academy style thing. But after having done so, was not, like felt like she wasn't closer to actually being able to build something. But she played some Twilio quests, um, had and in so doing, like kind of got a local Python development environment going, um, and kind of understood like, oh, this is what I actually need to do to be a developer and I can create files and I put things in the files and I run the Python code on my computer and now I have a Flask application uh, running and now I can modify it and uh, deploy it. Um, and like those stories of empowerment are really, I mean, we we love making games and we love making great experiences, but um, that's where the gas really comes from for this work, for sure. Both of us, if you've heard us, we say we get to do this. <laughs> and you don't often hear that when someone's talking about their job, but it truly is like it's such a rewarding job to see that impact. And so that's why like I wake up every day, I hop into that meeting and we get to design this game. We get to work on this game um, because it's it's really it's heartening to see that effect. All right, Charlotte, now that you've said that part, what's the worst part about this kind of work? <laughs> <laughs> like, What days suck the most? Oh, they can't all be great. Okay, fine. You want me to be honest here? Um, well, you know, the reality is Code Combat, we're still a startup. You know, like we, we've been in the game for several years, but we're still a startup. So it often comes to pass when your vision doesn't meet the resources that you have. And to me, that's what the when it's the hardest is when you have to, you know, choose what to implement and what not to implement based on the resources that that you have. That is all very relatable. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a hard plus one over here. Often the the vision does outstripe your ability to execute with the resources you have. There are just always the constraints of things you have to do to keep the lights on um, and sort of justify that you know your program is working, like doing the work of measurement and seeing how things are going and communicating the vision of the project um, to internal stakeholders and, and making sure that you're you know hitting the numbers that you need to hit. And like the the things that you know we leap out of bed to do are creating content and uh, making the experience better. The things that we uh, groan at uh, typically are uh, the other things that we have to do in order to allow ourselves to have those days where we can work on code. What would be your biggest advice for anyone who is interested in making an educational game about coding? Play lots of games, like lots of games. Yeah. And we, we even have a weekly meeting where we just talk about games that we're playing right now and reflecting on, oh, what worked, what didn't work, you know, what could we use to play in the game? So, so I mean, I play board games, too. No, don't, don't just, like, confine yourself to video games because games are, are really engaging, but it also helps you break down what works in a game and what doesn't work with a game, what feels authentic and what doesn't feel authentic. So there's that piece. But then for the coding piece or the curriculum piece, put the learner hat on, pretend you're the learner and go and, and learn that content and do a deep dive because then you can focus on what are the possible stumbling blocks along the way when you're trying to learn a skill or a concept and document that because you know that when you're designing a game for kids that they're going to stumble on those same things. So you know where to focus the most attention on with your content. So I would say that's the dual thing. Deep dive into what you're teaching and look at the stumbling blocks and then also deep dive into games just so you know what the tools are. And once you have a really nice toolbox of tools that you can use uh, in game design, the sky's the limit on what you can build. 
I think I'd add to that, like if you are interested in doing an educational video game and building one, kind of starting with why, like understanding like, well, why am I, why are we building this? What is, what is it that we are trying to make that is different from what exists? Is there a problem that we are trying to solve um, that is really novel here um, with regard to education? And like going through and playing games and, and seeing what else is out there is an important part of that. Like for instance, like when we were getting started with Twilio Quest, I played some Code Combat myself, and uh, <laughs> my daughter actually has played a lot of Code Combat and is still cranking through it. And you learn a lot about how other folks have approached the problem, um, and you kind of need to articulate like what is your hypothesis around what is going to be different about this or what is going to be useful about this. Yeah, plus one on that with Kevin, uh, definitely with the why. I think we see a huge drop off with students going from block-based coding, which some of you might have heard of with Scratch mm -hmm. and Code.org. But when they head, head into programming and text, you see a huge drop-off of students who remain engaged in coding because getting syntax errors, uh, debugging, uh, misspellings, et cetera, just can be extremely frustrating. And so they wanted to build a platform where you sort of alleviate those frustrations. Uh, they have a very sophisticated debugging system that actually pushes informative errors to the kids so they can debug the code themselves. And so things like that, I think the why really also helps you make decisions when you're at that crucial point where you go, I have this many resources and this much to build. You always go back to your why. Okay, why are we here? Why are we building this? And that really helps clarify what features should be prioritized over others as well. Absolutely. The other piece I'm thinking of too is start small. You know, don't feel like you have to build an entire game, right? Apply the design thinking process and iterate over and over again on small pieces of your game to see, oh, what's working, what's not before you expand that world and expand that experience. Chances are, like other software developers, you learn better by doing than just watching. Unfortunately, most online learning platforms still have you passively sit through videos instead of actually getting your hands dirty. Educative.io is different. Their courses are interactive and hands-on with live coding environments inside your browser so you can practice as you go. They're also text-based, meaning you can skim back and forth like a book to the parts you're interested in. Step up your learning in 2021. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off of an annual subscription. A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastax is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastax Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. Now we're going to move into a segment where we look at responses that you, the audience, have sent to us to a question we made in relation to this episode. The question we asked you all was, what would you like to know about making educational coding games? Our first response is a message we received on our Google Voice. 
Regarding the question, what I'd like to know about making games or helping people learn to code, um, I'd be curious, like, how you can think about the gamification aspect. What approaches do you have? How do you check whether something's right or wrong? Is it a multi-choice type thing? Is it you put in code and it checks against some tests? Sort of related to that, I'd be curious of the math perspective of um, how do you know if someone's completed or if they've met whatever criteria to earn a badge, that sort of thing. Sort of the math behind gamification is what I want to know about. So I think this question is kind of about how do you measure success, I I think. You know, we talked a little bit about what gamification means, but this kind of question gets more into how do you know something is working the right way it's supposed to. Kevin, do you want to start us off? Measurement of success for us, like we uh, have instrumented uh, the game with uh, some analytics that give us a sense of how far folks uh, progress into the content that we have. Um, Because the content that we have is largely based on prerequisites, um, you won't necessarily be able to move on to one concept before you have uh, mastered the other and they they kind of build on uh, one another oftentimes. Um, We usually see from that data where people are getting stuck the most or where people actually end up I mean we've you know can identify sort of some trouble spots usually based on that information in terms of like there's one other part of the question about sort of how do you validate that they've completed the assignment that's actually one of the biggest parts of the technology that we created is we have you know validation code that runs locally and that validation code is actually some of the most important instructional content we have in the game. Uh, We look at the code file that they submitted sometimes, and uh, we try to detect syntactical errors, or if there's errors in their environment configuration, you know, that validation, and then more importantly, like how we communicate that to the user um, is probably the most important part of the experience. So making sure that there's like a feedback loop, which is useful, is something that we work pretty hard at and still need to work hard at. It's something that where you can never have quite enough. I could piggyback off a little bit there, too. So within uh, our levels, we are very transparent to the user or the student or the player what the goals are for that level. So it's actually literally shown off as a checklist. And some of them are the goals we're looking within the code itself. Are you using a function? Are you using a loop? And other ones are state-based goals. So what we mean by state-based goals is we check to see did the character in in your game go from point A to point B? And along the way, did the character collect these gems? Or along the way, did the character defeat these enemies? And those state-based goals can only be achieved, we designed the level itself, can only be achieved if they used code, like if they used proper code using conditionals, loops, functions, etc. So it's a lot of thinking under the hood about how can we set up an experience where it authentically feels like I have to use a conditional to get past this cabbage cart guy in this village. And and we set it up so it feels sort of authentic that, oh, it makes sense that if I can get ca- past that cabbage cart guy, I actually authentically um, uh, mastered conditionals in this level. Uh, on the other hand, too, because we're uh, this platform is being used by educators, we built a teacher dashboard where teachers can actually see the progress that their kids are making in the game itself. And especially in Azaria, we even include multiple choice questions along the way just to check that the kids understand specific concepts before they even dive into coding in the levels. Given that there are so many ways to approach a problem, do you ever get 
you know, like a snarky experienced developer coming in and, you know, just being like, oh, this should have been done this way or this solution should have been the one that was presented or anything like that? Uh, I think you've been on the internet long enough to know that the answer <laughs> to that is yes. Uh, that definitely does uh, happen from, from time to time. It, it's kind of hard if you're if you're teaching something like JavaScript. There, there's a lot of you know new technology and new shiny around that. And uh, if you're not you know using you know a fat arrow function, then then what are you doing with <laughs> with your life? But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you just try to stay laser focused on the the audience that you're you're trying to serve. And mo most of the time for us, like we, we are generally serving folks that are either professionals and, and, and transitioning careers or university students or folks that are um, trying to acquire um, the skills to become a professional developer and just trying to stay focused on what their needs are. And sometimes the solution that is the most clear and is the most sort of repeatable and uh, teachable might be better than, you know, trying to teach how to do, you know, a fancy recursive, you know, algorithm implementation or, you know, using the latest and greatest uh, technology. I kind of hijacked our member responses just now. Um, ben, would you like to read our next question? Yeah, Bernard asks a good one. What frameworks and libraries are available to game development? And let's talk about maybe the kind of stuff that's more browser based or, or further from, uh, you know, only game development stuff. Thankfully, um, in you know 2020, there are some pretty good tools available for game development that's focused on the on the browser. Really Quest does run on the desktop, but it uses a technology called Electron, uh, which is a, a wrapper technology that lets you package HTML, CSS, and JavaScript as a desktop uh, web application, uh, which is used by Slack and Visual Studio Code and and some other desktop applications that you might use uh, every day. And the technologies that we use, we use uh, React for a lot of the user interface components of, of the game. And from the actual game development, I'll, I'll say, like the you know, development in Unity and other, other things that I've dabbled in in the past, HTML and CSS with React uh, is about 100 times better uh, for creating user interfaces than a lot of those other uh, technologies are, at least right out of the box, um, in my humble opinion. Uh, so that piece of game development ends up being quite a bit easier. Uh, the thing where the tooling is you know, less robust is around the more gamey elements, like the level editing and map design. Uh, there are some technologies out there to use. Uh, so the the game development library we use uh, primarily for the animated and interactive uh, bits is called uh, PhaserJS, uh, which has been really great. We've we've enjoyed working with it quite a lot. It renders to a WebGL canvas, which kind of sits underneath the React application that we build, and that's what we use for you know physics, collisions, uh, animations, uh, those those types of things. For level design, we use an open source tool called Tiled, which is a map editor uh, that exports. Um, you know the the map information into a JSON format that you can consume in the in the browser. Um, so that uh, for a variety of reasons has been a has been a good tool that we've leveraged quite a bit. But the uh, the thing that you'll find lacking from like a game design and development standpoint is you know if you're using something like Unity or even like a um, say a game maker studio, um, you might be used to some pretty robust like drag and drop tooling and 
um, you know, level design uh, niceties that uh, if you're developing for the web, you won't necessarily have access to. Um, but with you know technologies like Phaser um, and some of the open source tools that are out there, you know, you can sort of leverage uh, the wins that you get from you know user interface being so much easier to you know maybe having a little bit more time to invest in some of those other bits. So. Ephraim wrote in and asked, why would you recommend a coding game to someone over a tutorial? The primary bit that I throw out there is, you know, when we see people that really do connect with the game, it's kind of has succeeded where other tutorials have failed in giving them enough of a of a carrot and an enough motivation uh, to make progress on something that is ordinarily pretty difficult. And uh, software development generally is pretty difficult. It's sort of defined by frustration. Uh, you'll introduce syntax errors, you'll execute code, and it doesn't work. And there's there's so much failure involved in the process of software development that you know having some motivation, having a goal, having something fun that happens as a result of your hard work that can provide more motivation than you might have ordinarily. And also providing the narrative structure that you have in a game is probably the primary advantage I've noticed because I did write, you know, documentation and our, our team created a lot of documentation that, you know, was in more of a tutorial format. And folks just make it way further into the game content than they ever did in our written content, largely because we are able to provide that narrative structure. You are making a character walk from one objective to another, um, so it's clear what what's happening next. So I think like the power of providing that narrative structure, along with the extra motivation and uh, reward that you get, um, are probably the primary differentiators between you know what works about a game versus what works about a tutorial. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the motivation piece too. Also along that same line, a tutorial often is just focused it in the education what we talk, call it direct instruction. So it's, you know, sort of more of like a lecture. It's a teacher teaching you the concept, but you also then need to have the motivation to go and take what uh, you learned and apply it and practice it. And what's great about a coding game is it enfolds all of that into one experience. So you're learning the concept, but then you're immediately immersed into a world where you need to practice and apply it to solve problems. And because of that, also, you know, again, you're the way you learn to code is you're you're failing forward and you're embracing mistakes. And in a coding game, it sort of encourages you to do so. You're rewarded to do so. Uh, and so I think uh, the immersion and the motivation within that experience is, to me, far superior than checking a tutorial. Now, a tutorial is great if, you know, you're not a beginner and you just need a quick access to understanding or clarifying a question. But for me, a coding game is great for if you're starting from the beginning, you really want to do a deep dive into a concept or a skill. I'd recommend that. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. I want to thank everyone who sent in responses. For all of you listening, please be on the lookout for our next question. We'd especially love it if you would dial into our Google Voice. The number is International Code 1 or you can email us a voice memo so we can hear your responses in your own beautiful voices. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. Editorial oversight by Peter Frank and Saran Yabarik. Our theme song is by Slow Biz. If you have any questions or comments, please email pod at dev.to and make sure to join our DevDiscuss Twitter chats on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Or if you want to start your own discussion, write a post on Dev using the hashtag Discuss. 
please rate and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts.